This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome along to the Australian Museum tonight for this uh, very exciting evening to celebrate science and the launch of the Eureka Prizes. For those of you I haven't met, but I think I've almost met everyone in the room, I'm Kim McKay, uh, the Director and CEO of the Australian Museum. I'd like to start this evening by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to Elders past and present. And of course, here at the Australian Museum, we are the custodians of one of the most significant Indigenous collections in the nation. And so it's very important that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're gathered. I've got to thank our trailblazers of Australian science who are already, look, they're so eager, they're sitting down here already. It's fantastic. Who are our panellists for tonight's discussion. They'll be introduced by Robin soon, but Dr. Philip Akijo, Professor Emma Johnson, Professor Murray Tesson. Of course, Emma, you were just hot off uh, the press club today, right? I am everywhere. You are everywhere. <laughs> if you didn't see Emma on Q&A the other night, I'm sure Robin will talk about that, but she was mightily impressive. Um, so thank you for being with us because you are everywhere. Uh, Murray Teeson, as I said, Terry Speed, of course, and our very own Rebecca Johnson. So uh, it's very good to have the surname Johnson now as a woman in science too, I think, don't you? Always has been. <laughs> and of course, uh, Rebecca is the director of the Australian Museum Research Institute and someone who probably doesn't need a huge introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway, is Dr Robin Williams, who's going to moderate our fantastic panel this evening. So tonight's trailblazers are here to talk about their eureka moments. The big issues facing Australian science, and of course there are many, uh, not to mention celebrating all that is fantastic about Australian science at the moment. And uh, for those people who can't be with us tonight, our ambassadors, we are recording this uh, as part of a podcast that the Australian Museum is putting out. We're doing all of our lectures and talks now as podcasts. Someone, of course, who inspired me to want to do podcasts was Robin Williams, because there's nothing like listening to Robin's mellifluous tones on the radio each week on the Science Show, and it, he's just great. And it's so good to see you here, Robin, and looking so fighting fit and chipper. Thank you, Thank you. so much for coming along. Um, of course, Robin created the Eureka Prizes. He was president of the Australian Museum Trust way back when. Science journalist, broadcaster, national living treasure, and we gave him the Australian Museum's Lifetime Achievement Award as well last year. He presents the Science Show, of course, on Radio National, RN as they call themselves, and Occam's Razor on the ABC. And he serves as so many, on so many different boards and capacities outside of the ABC and has done so much to progress science and science communication in Australia. It is extraordinary. And of course, apart from creating the Eurekas, he's also a winner of a, a, a Eureka Prize. Thank so you. So that's a good idea. So you create the award and then you get it. <laughs> it's very, uh, very convenient. I'll be announcing one myself. Mm. Um, I, Robin, I can't think of anyone better to host our discussion about trailblazers in science than you. So I'm going to hand it over you to you. You are kind. You, you might, in a minute, when I ask you a journalist question, what about the announcement at 5.15 today about the move of the Australian Museum out beyond Burke? <laughs> um, that would be called being slightly blindsided by the government, I think. But, you know, Robin, I've heard that the ABC is moving from Ultimo to Udna Data. 
You're quite right. <laughs> See you out there. Thank you, Kim. Good. Enjoy, everybody. I'll be back later. That was called Tempting Fate. I want to mention a couple of E-words. Well, more than one, uh, but two especially. Two which are relatively unfashionable in certain quarters. One of them is elite, and the other is excellence. And they're mentioned these days in some parts of the media as if they're bad words, as if it's a bad thing to be top of the line and to be excellent at what you do. This is what the Eureka Prize is, another E. That's what they're all about. And they're nothing really to do, as this museum is nothing to do with being separate from people. The whole point about being, if you're in Udnadatta or if you're at back of Burke or if you're in the middle of Sydney or spreading around a museum on the road, you're with the people at every level. You're in the schools, you're doing amazing things. So it seems to me those are two words to cherish along with Eureka, Eureka Prizes. We're going to whip around and ask each of our Eureka winners and Rebecca, who's going to win a Eureka Prize at some stage, um, their, their point of view about a number of things, starting, of course, with another E, Emma, <laughs> who's just come back from Canberra, watching you on television, in the newspaper today. How was it in Canberra? Fabulous. E everywhere, Emma. Um, so... First of all, we had a eureka moment right at the start of the press club meeting and we realised that we knew all the answers to solving the problems of equity in science. So instead of having a press club meeting, we stormed Canberra and, uh, and we installed ourselves as the new ministerial advisors and the new ministers and we've changed everything and it's all going to be fine. So we can just relax about the that. The women took over. Yes, <laughs> that's it. No, no, the, the reality was it was a really good... Uh, press club meeting, there, you know, not just because I was speaking, but there were, Tanya Munro gave an outstanding talk, she's a professor and um, DVCR. University of South Australia. University of South Australia. Nalini Joshi, first ever mathematics professor at the University of Sydney, gave an outstanding Front talk. Front page of the Sydney Morning Herald today. Excellent. And whilst we all gave different perspectives on the issue of encouraging and enhancing women in science and improving gender equity within science careers, we also had these continual themes. We'd all had very different upbringings, we've all got very different research fields, and yet those themes came through consistently. That equity, which is another E word, and excellence are not two separate things. But sometimes the way that we define excellence, the way that it can be defined through cultural expectations, through cultural norms, through homogeneity of people within certain environments, another E word, it, it gets a little bit skewed. And so what we need to do beyond changing the structural barriers to women in science, and there are several structural barriers still in existence, is change our definition of excellence to include all of those things that we actually really feel are important. Teaching, for example. Research that isn't particularly high impact in the external world but has a huge impact in the state government, for example. Or it has a huge impact in the longer term, not right now. And so being able to engage and to change those definitions is part of changing 
the norms and increasing equity within science. And that's kind of how it went. Excellent. And the response? Very positive as far as Twitter is concerned. <laughs> Twitter's going off. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, we had a really good response in the room. And uh, yeah, I was lying about that bit about storming Parliament, so I'm not quite sure how far the, the policy changes are going, but we've got some good ideas. You reminded us on um, Q&A a week ago, as Professor Ubiquity, how only about 17% of, of, of the positions in Australian science, the, the senior ones, are occupied by women. Now, how are you going to get inspired young people taking on the challenge without putting them off with bleak stories about how tough it is? You know, that balance is difficult. And it's chicken and egg. It's all chicken and egg because we have so few women in the senior roles within science and actually it's gone down to 16% this year. So that was last week. 17%. And as I said, um, slightly contradicting the, the um, chief scientist, oof, that wasn't a great move. But anyway, um, as I said, the numbers aren't necessarily improving for women in science. And that's because if we don't keep our eye on the ball, things go backwards because of cultural norms. But we, so we have these few people in the senior roles. The media then due to tight timeframes and also the need to present, you know, the most senior authoritative voice, tend to go to those people for comment. And there we get under-representation of women. So women actually take 40% of the STEM jobs in universities and the research sector. So we're there. We're there in huge numbers. We have been more than 50% of the undergraduates and more than 50% of the postgraduates in the natural and physical sciences for decades. But we're not in the senior roles for a number of different reasons and therefore we're not getting exposure. And we know that if the role models aren't there, the younger generation become less confident, they become less attracted to those roles and so we get in this negative cycle, this vicious negative cycle. And I think it's up to all of us to change that because unless we do it from multiple angles, we can't actually attack the problem very well. Thank you. Well, Dr. Philip Akijo from the University of Melbourne, winner of the 2015 Eureka Prize for Emerging Leader in Science. Emma, of course, got the one for promoting science. And at 31, the youngest ever coordinator of a large-scale physics experiment. When you got the Eureka Prize, did it make a difference apart from the check? <laughs> I had a um, <clears throat> last year. I had come back after being outside of Australia for about eight years, uh, working on uh, particle physics experiments uh, in Europe, in, in in Geneva in particular, also in Japan. And coming back to Australia and being very lucky uh, to win this award, uh, it boosted my profile in Australia. So uh, my uh, profile with other physicists, uh, with students, with people within my university, um, it, it all got boosted um, to a point where I'm, I'm noticed and the, the, the research program that I'm working on um, is uh, is, is something that everyone is actually quite interested in. What is the research program? Okay, so perhaps I'll, I'll go back to something a little bit more simple then. So my, my field is on uh, particle physics, and in particular experimental particle physics. And the idea there is that we 
understand uh, the processes of nature by looking at the most fundamental building blocks, so the, the, the matter particles and the force-carrying particles that describe everything that we essentially see. Uh, experimental particle physics is uh, an area where uh, we commonly use uh, very large collider-based uh, uh, collider detectors. We'll smash particles together at close to the speed of light. There's a very famous one uh, at CERN in Geneva, the Large Hadron Collider. I worked on that when we discovered the Higgs boson a few years ago. Um, I've worked on a similar one in Japan uh, that's looking into a puzzle um, uh, concerning the missing antimatter in the universe. So, so this puzzle uh, essentially uh, is related to how matter and antimatter was produced in equal abundance, essentially, as the universe um, uh, was formed from, from the Big Bang. So we had a, a state where we had pure energy, then matter and antimatter was produced in sort of uh, in equal abundance. But when we look out into the universe today, there's no antimatter left. There's no mechanism that can describe it. So this other particle collider I'm working on is uh, looking to measure the difference between matter and antimatter by essentially recreating the conditions of the early Big Bang about a picosecond after it was created. More recently, and it wasn't mentioned in the Eureka uh, Prize uh, because it is so recent, um, I'm working on an experiment that's going to be located a thousand meters underground uh, in Stall in Victoria. And we're trying to solve a completely different problem. Um, the problem is associated to the dark matter of the universe. So we know through gravitational interactions that there's about five times more dark matter than there is ordinary standard model everyday matter that makes us up. And there's no understanding of the, the kind of the way that uh, this dark matter interacts with ordinary matter. We know it, it has to have some other method with, through which it must interact. Um, we don't know if there's an entire plethora of different types of particles out there. So we're, we're locating a detector about, as I said, a kilometer underground, shielded from the sun, and we're going to be looking for these ghost particles for the next few years. Isn't it exciting? Uh, I, Were you I, I surprised? Love it. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be underground for the next five years, but nonetheless, <laughs> were you surprised at the attention the Higgs got? It was number one on the BBC for two days, and when gravitational waves were announced here, the place went berserk. Mm. This is difficult physics, and it's making a huge impact. Were you surprised? Uh, I was surprised um, how big it was in 2012. So the, the announcement was actually made in Melbourne. Um, when the discovery was essentially announced to the public, we had a, a broadcast to a conference we were having. We had all of the, the world's particle physicists there. Um, and a few people mentioned that they left their lanyards on when they went to the shops. They were stopped just by random people in the shops to ask about the, the SIGS discovery. They wanted to know <laughs> what, what it was all about. That's what it's all about. <laughs> yeah. I think it's really super. I, I think that um, the, the general interest in fundamental science actually sparks, it, um, sparks everyone's curiosity. Right? There are so many people that they don't care about the application. And th there are actually sort of spin-offs, but they, they just want to see answers and, and very difficult challenges being They met. can feel your excitement. Yeah. You know, that's what leadership and that's what uh, Eureka's all about. Fantastic. Marie, I interviewed you, was it in 1948 or... Uh, <laughs> 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 Winner of the 2014 Eureka Prize for Outstanding Mentor. 1988, Robin. It was 1988. 1988. Yeah. Oh, well. 
the decades pass. <laughs> <laughs> was it about homeless people? It was. It was actually about my first research job. And you were talking about E, and it was around equity and the issues of um, schizophrenia and mental illness and homelessness. And we walked past many of those issues as we came to the museum still today. Um, when you mentioned the E words, and that's what drives me, it was equity, um, I, I also automatically thought about e-health, because that's my fun area at the moment too. Um, I got the eureka in the area of mental health and substance use, and it still drives me today that thousands of young Australians have problems with substance abuse, problems with mental health, and they're all alone. They actually won't talk to anyone about it. So that's my passion. How do I engage with them? And I think the e-health space is so much opportunity there. And how do we give them the best interventions? And that's the excellence. And you know, many research teams in Australia, we lead the world in terms of doing some of the best treatments in the world. We publish them in the leading medical journals in mental health, but would anyone know about it? It's Why don't they? Come on the it's, radio next week. Yeah, I'm willing to talk to you about it, yeah. Fabulous treatment for people with trauma and mental health problems, trauma and substance use problems that are published in the Journal of the American Medical mm. Association. It's communication. I'm sure it's no different from well, why Lynn you Malcolm started. Well, Malcolm here presents all in the mind mm. and there are, was it, three and a half million listeners? So we, we do our bit. Uh, you do a fabulous <laughs> job. <laughs> Absolutely fabulous job. And, of course, it was in mentoring. Yeah. So, um, the Eureka. What is um, your approach to, to mentoring? mentoring how, do you, how do you do it? Our, our model is always to pay it forward. It's not about the mentor giving something back to the person who's mentoring them. For me, it's take what you're given and then give it to the next generation. And once you do that, it, you free the person. You free the person from feeling like they're in a shackle to actually giving and, and developing. And the other one, the other really critical thing in our team is it's very hard to keep your self-belief, especially in science where you're constantly challenging. So as a mentor, part of my job is to, is to nurture and hold that self-belief for an individual, especially at the times when they're not feeling very confident and strong themselves, so that when they have the eureka moments, they can go forth. So that's Do you get important. bleak moments yourself in, in the work? You know, getting the Eureka Award was a really big moment for me. I mean, bleak. <laughs> it was amazing. Mm. And um, it was doubly amazing because I, um, uh, my staff wrote the application while I was lying in a hospital bed, having been the recipient of some of the best early intervention care in the country for breast cancer. And they sat and wrote the application for me. So I... I, it, the eureka moment was we do need early intervention, we need prevention, we need the best medical research in the world. Thank you. Terry Speed, maths, stats. Now you have won the Prime Minister's Science Prize as well as the Eureka Prize and you work at the Wahai with medical people who are generally dealing in pharmaceuticals and, okay, epidemiology, but uh, usually with patients. Is there a kind of standoff between what you do and the everyday medical people, or are you working as one? Well, I think we're working as one, uh, but perhaps not all everyday medical people are dealing with genomics, DNA, proteins, and you know, amino acids, footballers perhaps, but 
doctors on the whole, uh, <laughs> doing less of this. So my specialty is data and uh, the genomic data, the data on DNA and uh, all these other molecules has exploded in the last 20 years. And so uh, coming from someone who was interested in medical science but lacked the bedside manner, not too good looking down microscopes, I was always disappointed in dissection because it never looked like the picture in the book. So I thought I would go to something. I know what you mean. I went to something like mathematics where all triangles are perfect and, all, and so on. So uh, my disappointment with reality uh, led me to mathematics, but later on the medical profession caught up so that I just sort of stuck around for a while and eventually they needed people like me. So there's not a disconnect, but we're not yet at the point where Every patient walks in the door, you take a blood sample, and do a genome sequence, and then uh, base your treatment on that. But that's somehow, maybe at least in the first world and perhaps later, and certainly in uh, some parts of the third world with infectious diseases, that's where we're going. How so, many people are there like you in Australia? Well, there's more than there are jobs, let me tell you. There's lots of young people very excited about this area, getting trained and looking for jobs. The trouble is funding people like me. It's okay for some old guy who's got a good track record, they'll give you a grant or a fellowship, but the young people coming up, they don't quite fit the medical mould at the moment. You know, they don't publish papers in science or nature or cell, all this uh, masculine, you know, sort of uh, alpha male outlets. They don't, so that it's actually quite difficult. There's no shortage of young people wanting to do this thing. There's a shortage of slots to employ them. And uh, that's mm. one thing that I'm working on. Okay, a piece of advice. We have, uh, we mentioned Trevor just now, and of course, uh, uh, your daughter there, working in this very field of genes and numbers mm -hmm. and seeing a revolution in the field. Now, all of this is changing so fast. Yep. And in about 10 years' time, we won't believe the way in which the work that you do will have come spread right round and also made things much more efficient incredibly more focused and, and, and getting results. So how do you give advice to a young person like that about how to stick in there and make it work as a profession? You know, what do we well, have to do? I don't actually think our situation is fundamentally different from science in general. You know, I mean, there's loads of young people, what have we got, about a 14 or 15% success rate in uh, grant applications to the NHMRC. Most of them are wet lab biologists. So they're, they're really facing the same problem. It's just that perhaps their role is recognised a bit better. But you know, I think the advice is if, you, if it excites you, you stick with it. And, persevere. Uh, well, persevere. Of course, not everybody is really going to make it. You might do a postdoc and then find the next step is closed off. So you also have to be flexible because... Well, like Philip, go overseas. <laughs> well, go overseas, yeah. But I'm thinking of people that might have gone overseas and come back. You know, I, I don't know really what the solution is to this, but I feel young people uh, have to keep pursuing their goal, but also be flexible. So that if, for example, dare I say it, an opportunity in science communication comes up and uh, you suddenly find, gee, that's not a bad job, and maybe the hours are better, and maybe there's you know, more reliable. Not. No. Well, anyway, <laughs> you know what I mean. There are, there are a lot of exciting jobs in science, and so it's also important not to be fixated on exactly that, you know, alpha male ladder that we're 
su suggested to us is the only thing worthwhile. Sure. Because it's not. But be persevere. Well, Rebecca Johnson, Johnson's great name. John Ston here, John Son over there. And you run the Australian Museum Research Institute. And uh, this museum is a centre for the public to come in for all sorts of interaction, not least citizen science, which Kim McKay mentioned. How do you see, Rebecca, this museum as a centre for those sorts of things we've been hearing about and the future? Thanks, Robin. Um, first, I felt like I needed to apologise to all the people I put on the invite list for tonight. I didn't realise that I would be on the panel. <laughs> so I thought I would be enjoying this panel along with the rest of you in the audience. However, I am incredibly proud to be representing the Australian Museum here tonight and the Australian Museum Research Institute, not least because we run the Eureka Prizes organised by these two wonderful ladies over here, Vanessa and Kristen, and recognising the most incredible people that we have just heard from on the panel. And I think that that's, that's also a really great example of the role of the Australian Museum. And People perhaps don't know that um, we're the second oldest scientific institution in the country. And I'm, I'm quite passionate, passionate about the concept that we're actually a slightly under-recognised partner in many ways. In fact, we have probably contributed to the research of many people in the room that, and they didn't really think it, that it might have been the case when they first started their project. So it's not uncommon for someone to get to the end of their PhD and come to us and say, oh, I've been working on this worm for the last three years and, and we think it's pretty important. What is it? And, and we have that expertise here at the Australian Museum and we have an incredible collection. We've been doing that kind of science for a really long time and we're incredibly proud of the science that we do. But we also have the very important role of connecting the school children and the people that perhaps haven't even started school yet with science research and then what might happen after even if they don't become scientists, uh, traditional academics, which is perhaps not the only career path in science these days, they hopefully will have a recognition of the importance of science and uh, definitely an appreciation of science. And I think that's possibly the most important role that we can play in society. How does citizen science fit in now it's been established here? Citizen science is very exciting because I believe that it's gone past science engagement, which is a really great use of citizen science to, to get people enthusiastic about going and measuring things just because they're doing some kind of science is great. But citizen science is now where those data are being used in real projects that are being run by scientists. And, and those data are suddenly open up collections that are not possible without the involvement of those people that are prepared to do it at, at X time point or at X location or a combination of both. So there are some really, really exciting evolutions of citizen science because they really are generated by scientists now and, and that's, that's certainly something that I've observed only in the last couple of years and um, it, it's almost becoming something that is perhaps even as an essential part of many scientific projects, how do you involve the, the public in your science? Because they actually really want to be involved. And, and it's, it's very much beyond science engagement. Yeah, I once went to a conference in America where they had 700 different fields of citizen science represented from cancer through to the collection of belly button fluff to see <laughs> what fungi grow in your torso. <laughs> Most extraordinary. 
But how are you going to cope with all those thousands of people wanting to stay in touch? Presumably the new technology comes into its own there. Certainly new technology is a complete game changer. It, you, suddenly you can GPS track things like never before. Uh, people can get instant gratification. But I think that is a really important aspect is that people feel like what they are contributing is actually making a difference. And so, so I think as scientists it's very important for us to ensure if we're engaging in these projects that there is a feedback loop that this is what happened this year and this is what your data are contributing to and these are the outcomes. And it might not be instant, no, it's not CSI, but it, it, you are making a difference and it, it's up to us to ensure that we are feeding back to people that are contributing. What do you think of that, Emma? You presumably know that uh, in marine science, the involvement of the public has been crucial in tracking the way creatures are moving, plants are moving in the ocean as well. And that kind of relationship between real scientists doing genuine work and the public taking the stuff seriously. The more eyes, the better, really, because the, for me, I mean, ocean scientists, the ocean is so vast. Just the coast of Australia is phenomenally long. How long is a piece of string? In fact, people argue about how long the coast of Australia is. But we can't look at it all, we can't observe it all. And the more people we have, the more eyes we have, the better. So what it's all about is setting up systems where we can use the information that's coming in, where we can engage people really productively in doing science. So they're learning, they're getting feedback, they're getting ownership over their environment and understanding of their environment, but also that the data coming in is useful. And technology is helping us here, GoPros, mm. you know, opening up marine environments in a huge way. Just uh, this week, obviously, there's a massive disturbing bleaching event going on in uh, globally, but it's also just hit the Great Barrier Reef. And a lot of the work that's going on there is through technological advances. You know, these are photographs that are being taken from helicopters. This is not the old days where we used to stick a scuba diver in and they used to swim 50 metres along and would take an hour and they'd have to get up and they'd have the bends and, you know, this is being able to do 600 or 1,000 kilometres of coast and survey that within two days. And that's phenomenal. And that means that that kind of technology, obviously not all of us can hire a helicopter, but that kind of technology is being more and more available to the average person. And that means that we just need to engage everybody and everyone will become scientists. What I did want to say is really thank you for all those worm identifications mm. <laughs> because that's what museums do. Now, has anyone been into the basement? No, just me? Oh, you have to go. Frank so, has. So underneath here is an amazing vault where they keep all the specimens and the scientists. And, <laughs> and it's not that they're not... a. It's not that they're not allowed out, it's that they don't want to come out. And it's amazing, the scientists are down there <coughs> doing the most incredible explorations of biological diversity around the globe, then tap into that information that comes out of the museums and it enables us to understand the data that we're collecting. It enables citizen scientists to understand the data that they're collecting. Can you do that in physics as well, Kurt? Uh, there's a couple of different ways. Um, so many people may have heard of the SETI at home project. This is where you look for extraterrestrials using your home computer. And you, you install a program, it sends the data to your, to your computer and it analyzes it. So we've actually been able to do the same thing, looking for the Higgs boson, and also looking for other new particles. 
So actually, um, for example, one of the experiments, the Atlas experiment at the LHC, has at any one moment uh, between 100 and 200,000 computers analyzing the data. And around about 15 to 20,000 are just from people's own computers. And it turns out to be the, the biggest single contribution to the, to the discovery of, of, of the Higgs in terms of the data analysis part. Quite incredible, isn't it? Because yeah. Galaxy Zoo, which uh, Chris Lintott has helped pioneer in Oxford, was looking at the sorting of galaxies. And the interesting thing about what the citizen science have been doing, they're looking more thoroughly at these slides and saying, what's that over there? And of course the scientists haven't noticed because they haven't had the time. And they're making genuine different discoveries as well at the same time. We, I guess in, in the way that we, uh, the way that it's been done for particle physics, we haven't given the, the uh, the home user uh, so much flexibility in the way that they search for. <laughs> they have <laughs> That's a very nice idea, though. We'll have to ask whether we can in inject a little bit of randomness or systematic uncertainty from, from human error. The, 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 way that, the way that gravitational waves were detected was amazing because they set up a, a blind experiment, didn't they? So they had units, not, not just citizen scientists, but astronomers all over the world set up ready to detect and, and to analyse the data coming in. And they set off, you know, tricks. They did blind tests. They sent out and everyone had to test it and say, oh, no, is that a gravitational wave? Maybe, maybe not, you know. And so it was, it was an incredible use <coughs> of that network of people connected through computers. Yeah, normally when we do very large-scale statistical analyses, um, we blind ourselves when we're doing a discovery. Um, no matter what we're searching for, uh, usually we use simulation, um, knowingly use simulation. So this case, this was a case where the people doing the data analysis didn't know that the fake signals were being pumped through. They were only told afterwards, such that at the point where they made their discovery, they weren't sure whether it was just one of the fake signals just pumped into the system. Philip, I've often wanted to ask people, maybe as we're alone we can do that. Um, <laughs> if you read the novels, you can see scientists as being brutal and competitive and ruthless. But when we see you on Q&A, Emma, <laughs> and even with the panel, you all seem so nice, <laughs> as if you're different from all the lawyers and the politicians and the other people. You haven't read our grant reviews. <laughs> 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 Nothing nice. <laughs> so it can be bitter and twisted behind the scenes. Yeah, you, you, you get you get mixed experiences. Sorry, you get mixed experiences, even um, uh, different uh, environments of people, different collaborations where people know they're all fighting for the same sort of glory, uh, glory result at the end. They, they they all want to take a piece of it. Um, in the case of grants, it's wanting to take a piece of money rather than the rather than the credit. I <laughs> sometimes think of my staff as rock stars, and they want to be out the front being the lead singer. But the nice thing is, on a positive note, <laughs> and I've had my fair share of nasty reviews, is that as, as a group of people, we are all trying to build a coherent picture of the world, a coherent understanding of the world. So it, it, whilst we might fight and for a little bit of funding here and there, for the little bit of funding, I should say, here and there, yeah. we, as a, as a group trying to create a, an understandable knowledge of the world, we do cooperate. You know, I don't throw out the understanding that comes from physics 
even though it's not useful, I use it, you know, and, I, and I'd hope that the physicists would not ignore what I've found out about pollution impacts in Sydney Harbour because they also accept my understanding of the world and we try to create these layered levels of understanding and that's where the cooperation comes in and that's why we like each other so much as long as there's not a little pot of funding somewhere. <laughs> There's another way that we've um, had some had citizens involved directly in science, um, and it concerns our underground lab in Stoll. Turns out that um, this this was a linkage between uh, the not only the mining company that runs it, but the local council. And the local council were, were the ones that really pushed it. They wanted to have a lab in their in, in their town, and they're the ones who went to Canberra and uh, and uh, went to the. the uh, 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 the parliament in, in Victoria to, to lobby for direct funding. So they pushed it, and it was, it was due to their, um, their efforts that, that the lab actually got off the ground. Ju just pushing from, from the university side is not, not the way to, to, to build something. Uh, get the people the scale, involved. Yeah, that we need. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you get the people involved? Terry? Rebecca? How? <laughs> okay. Uh, I think the examples that I know about in my field, it tends to be competitions. You know, the prize is to be, as it were, the best citizen. I mean, there is a little company called Kaggle, which is not quite so little these days, started in Melbourne a few years ago and is now functioning in the Bay Area, San Francisco, where people essentially send their data to the company and then the company organises analyses by anyone who wants to participate. You can download the data and get your analysis and send it in and they're all compared and winners are announced and sometimes quite lucrative prizes. So it's a kind of competitive citizen science. You don't have to be in a university or an institute. You, can, you just need a computer. And so you can I, I get on with it yourself privately. Sorry? You can as an individual group. Yes, yes, people do. I mean, individuals do extraordinarily well or form little teams. Students can outperform their professors and so on. <laughs> So, <laughs> this is always good. Rebecca? Yeah. Um, aside from citizen science, which is obvious way of getting involved, I think what is something that we do quite... Well, we're, we're trying very hard to do at the Australian Museum is help people understand that what we do may be working on a specimen from 150 years ago, but it's actually making a difference today. So, we, we might be drawing upon a specimen that was collected in the 1850s and it might assist us with an identification of something that was found in Sydney Harbour and it might help us understand if that's a cosmopolitan species, if it's potentially something that's native that hasn't been described before or not recognised for a long time. And it's really important for people to understand that science is, is very relevant and a place like the museum is very re relevant and also perhaps through that understanding they can make different choices. So things like understanding that fish labelling perhaps could be improved significantly and help us make better choices about what we eat. We, do, we use our collection to identify specimens in the illegal wildlife trade, for example. People don't even realise that the illegal wildlife trade is a multi-billion dollar illegal industry. And so you might not actually be involved in the science, but if you understand that that science is done at places like the museum and other scientific institutions, then you might then make a better choice that when you are overseas in Indonesia and you see a snake in a bottle of whiskey, 
it might look kind of cool, but perhaps you don't want to buy that because firstly, it would be intercepted when you come back to Australia because it's illegal. Secondly, you buy that, you pay someone for that produce, they will go and put another snake in a bottle and potentially put another individual from that species at risk. So there are lots of ways that we can make a difference. And I think it perhaps comes back to how we communicate our science. And um, it's very multidisciplinary. It's very collaborative. I think um, there's so many touch points of overlap between everyone on the panel tonight. And, and it's wonderful that it's recognised through something like the Eureka Prizes. I just want to say also that the Eureka Prizes are part of getting people engaged because it makes it so exciting and it builds the prominence and we all get to dress up, which is important. I love that. Which drive makes it more limousine. attractive. Drive a limousine. <laughs> and no, because every idea that we have, every eureka moment, and I increasingly have eureka moments as I get older and I forget that I've thought of something before and I remember <laughs> it again. Um, every one of those moments, if it's a good idea, it's going to move from innovative to conventional very quickly. And if we don't celebrate them now, then everyone will say, of course we know about X, Y, Z, and of course we've got mobile phones. But the point is, at the point of invention, at the point of creation, it's so exciting. And we can get people involved in that excitement if we just let people know about it and we know about them. And that's why the Eureka Prizes, I think, are so important. Marie, do you want to say it is, a, it is a team sport science. And it's not just the scientists having to be the team, it's also the communicators who work with us. So obviously yourself, Robin, the types of roles that you've got. And at my institution, at UNSW, you've got fabulous support people. I can see one, Paul Ashworth at the back. We wouldn't survive without them. Deb Smith. Deb Smith over there. Yep, Deb Smith. <laughs> we wouldn't survive without them working with us and teaching us how to be better communicators. Indeed. Finally, what would you like to see happen next? I think. There's an election coming up, and um, the pollies are going to do various things, even if they don't move the... Investment uh, in innovation. Yes, <laughs> museum to back a bird. But um, yes. what would you like to see happen, apart from doubling the grants? <laughs> well, actually, at least bring some of Double? them back. Bring, bring, bring some <laughs> of them back to the levels that they were not too long ago. So there, there's one program, the Future Fellowship Program. That's what I came back to Australia on. Mm. And they cut that back by a factor of three this year. They cut it back by what? Factor of three. Factor of three? Yeah, used, there used to be 150 of these fellowships per year across all uh, disciplines, uh, supported by the ARC. Um, now it's down to 50. Back yeah. up to 100, but yeah. yeah. So oh, it went and, and 150. <laughs> last year was, was yeah, down to 50. Yeah, and then yeah. it's, it, so when you fall it's, across it's, a minister, and lobby plus like it's, crazy. Not, it's usually not, uh, it's only ever confirmed, say, one or two years in advance, but never a very long term plan. So it's very, it's very common to, to not find long-term plans in, in scientific science funding. And part of it perhaps is because some fields don't themselves don't produce um, long-term plans. They don't present um, together to tell the government, this is what we want to do as a field for the next 10 years. It, I don't see it very much in Australia. I've seen it in other places, in, in Germany, Canada, Japan, uh, the US. They always have these long-term plans. They always have to they bring these to the politicians and then <coughs> then, then they uh, uh, put together the, the, the appropriate program. No, no, one is, uh, no one has really done this properly, as far as I can tell. No, the president of this museum, Catherine Livingston, who also chairs the Business Council of Australia, said so many times, certainly in this building, 
you don't have stop-start funding of science. You've got to be consistent. You've got to have not at the level of 2%, like the lowest of the OECD countries, but maybe up near 4.2%, like Israel and a couple of other countries. What do you think, Terry? Yeah, I think that would be fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I didn't think stability, stability would be a good start, and then maybe a slow increase. What we're getting is instability is associated with a steady decline at the moment, which is not a great base for encouraging innovation and all these other wonderful things. I mean, you look at the innovation report and you say, well, most of the money's going to come not this year, not next year, but two years since and three years since. Who knows what the budget's going to be like and what government's going to be in. We should be able to do better than that. If Especially as science helps make the country more efficient and Absolutely. save you billions. Yes. Good. Thank you very much, panel. Very kind indeed. Ooh. Well done. Well done. Tim. Thank you so much, Robin, and to Philip, Emma, Marie, Terry, and Rebecca. Uh, what a great group of people, and all so diverse, and it makes you feel not very smart. Well, certainly for me, but boy, oh boy, it's great listening to you all and to hear about what you're doing. And what I love is that you all put yourselves out there. Now, of course, entries for the Eureka Prizes uh, are still open for another month, so you've got four weeks to get your act together if you haven't entered already and spread the word through your networks and colleagues because you could end up like one of these magnificent people here who've been able to leverage their Eureka Prizes. They close uh, at 7pm Eastern Standard Time on Friday the 6th of May. There are 16 prizes this year, so 16 great opportunities to win with $160,000 up for grabs in prize money. And I just do want to again thank our wonderful sponsors and support these awards. Incredibly important. Um, and also the collaborations that we get to have here right across the board, whether it's with um, private industry or indeed other government departments. I want you to please enjoy the hospitality of the Australian Museum tonight. Go and see Trailblazers outside if you get a chance or, or come back. We've celebrated science in that exhibition as part of exploration. Uh, some Tim Flannery, of course, is featured in there. Jared uh, Kreft is in there and some other scientists who've really paved the way in Australia with our understanding of this continent. So please enjoy Trailblazers as well this evening or come back or come back and see the virtual reality experience. Uh, lots happening here and thank you all so much for supporting the Eureka Prizes. Enjoy. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.